including, and yes, I've seen some people who've told me of connections they've had with family members I've, from the past, from time here in Birmingham in the 60s and 50s and back to the 30s. Look, looking forward to the rest of this week. I want you to talk about enemies tonight. Enemies. If I were going to ask you to write, I thought about doing this sometime. This is too big of a congregation to do it. Take a piece of paper. Write down what you feel to be the three greatest enemies facing God's people. What would you put on your list? In your mind, what would be the greatest enemies facing God's people? I think if we did something like that, we would get a lot of different answers. There would be a difference between the answers of the men and women. We have different perception sometimes about what threatens us most. I know that we would get a lot of different answers according to ages. I used to say below 40 years, maybe I should say 50 now. But if I were to ask people 50 years and above, what's the greatest enemies? I would get one set of answers. If I asked people 50, 45, where do you want to draw the line? And below, there would be a different list of enemies. So that's what I want to talk about tonight. Four facts about spiritual enemies. And don't get all excited when I'm through with the first one in five minutes, because they take a little longer on the rest of them. Just like sometimes they say, don't get real, real upset at some point, uh, it's going to take a lot longer. We'll try to get, up, get through in time here. First enemy, our first fact we need to realize is about spiritual enemies. We had better recognize that we have them. And we talked this morning about the, the worldview of postmodernism that, that really affects us today. And the only thing, according to that way of thinking, the only thing that is wrong is to say that something's wrong. You can, anything else is fine, but to say that something wrong, that is the sin. It's kind of cool, upscale today, to just not worry so much about sin or evil. If you were to ask most people, how big of a problem do you think that sin is? Most would laugh. I know in New Jersey that would be the case. Even here, it might be the case as well. The problem is that when we have no spiritual enemies, I should say when we perceive no spiritual enemies, then we have no love. Because if you love life, you're going to hate death. If you love justice, you're going to hate injustice. If you don't hate anything, you don't love anything. There are some texts that come to mind. You that love the Lord, hate evil. Though through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every evil way. An English novelist, he's from Poland originally, his name was Joseph Conrad. He said, you shall judge a man by his foes as well as his friends. And that's true. If you have no foes, you're a very bland individual with no 
convictions. Jesus said, and uh, Jesus said, Woe to you when all men speak evil, uh, when all men speak well of you. What's, that's another way of saying, Woe to you when you have no enemies. Jesus had enemies. The religious establishment of his, of his day, uh, the ignorance, the lack of faith, the lack of love for God, these were all enemies that Jesus attacked. If we're followers of Jesus, we're going to have enemies. There's no way around it if we are followers of him. You ever think of those Old Testament prophets? A friend of mine said this when just thinking about the list. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets. Every one of those prophets was strongly against something. Every one of them. They were strongly against anything that would take God's people away from him. So, before we even think about enemies, we need to realize that they are there and we'd better be watching for them. Here's another fact about spiritual enemies. Different types of enemies tend to threaten us more at different stages. First of all, we can talk about different stages of our life. Paul talked about fleeing youthful lust. There's some types of lust that affect young people more than, than older people. Titus chapter 2 is interesting along this line. That list of exhortations to different groups of people. Older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And it seems sometimes that Paul and some of the things he exhorts them to... Is, is, is dealing with some areas that might be weaknesses for that particular type of person more than others. Older men. I don't think there are many of them here. Sound in love and in patience. The fact of the matter is, and here again, I'm not there yet. But sometimes with dealing with the pains of old age and some of the challenges of old age, Old men can become grouchy. That's a statement. Grouchy old men. Paul says, don't you do that. This is something that might affect you. Old men, you be sound in your love and your patience. Don't be a grouchy old man. Older women. It's interesting. It's, it's specified that older women not be given to much wine. Now, that may not be a, a, such of a challenge here. At least I hope it's not. But sometimes I think, who are those who are sometimes given? Where is there more of a danger sometimes to overdo the prescription medication? Maybe that's an area where with all these aches and pains that we have, we may have to watch that type of thing. And of course, young men are told to be careful to have sound speech that cannot be condemned. Who's the most liable to go out and maybe use some language that they've heard from their friends. I think of some things I said that I did not know what they meant when I was a young man. I should have just been more careful. Hope I've learned better. But that may be a challenge more for the younger men. In my own life, I've seen different types of spiritual challenges that have affected me and have attacked me in different ways according to my age and my family situation. That's probably the case with you, if you stop and think about it. But also, different enemies threaten 
at different stages of Bible history. Have you ever noticed this? That God's people always had enemies. And yet, the focus of those trying to protect them from the enemy sometimes shifted. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Egyptian gods. The children of Israel wanted to go back. They still had some allegiance to those Egyptian gods. Joshua warns them about them. In Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14. But as the children of Israel spent more time in the land, God was more concerned about the Canaanite gods. Uh, thus, uh, we see Joshua talking, uh, and Judges, we see they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. That's Judges chapter 2 and verse 12. And by the time of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there was so much idolatry. Any culture anywhere in the Middle East, it seemed like the children of Israel had taken off after their idols. Those were the big enemies. But after the captivity in Babylon, it seemed like as far as at least outward idolatry was concerned, the Jews were concerned. No more statues, no more Baal, but you still have enemies. And thus in the book, books like Haggai, you see the prophets dealing with apathy and with discouragement as primary enemies that they had to deal with. And by the time Jesus came, you have the spiritual pride of the Pharisees. That Jesus takes on with such diligence there in Matthew chapter 23. It's not that idolatry was never a danger in the future. It's just a bigger danger. Now the spiritual pride and so forth. And uh, by the time you have Galatians and the early church, you have the Judaizing teachers. And it almost seems like that that may have been waning a bit by the time we get through the New Testament. But you have a new enemy. You have Gnosticism and ideas coming from the Greek world. And in Revelation, you have persecution as a big enemy. So, different enemies, different stages of Bible history. Now, I need to be a little careful with this, but I just thought, as I look back about among brethren that I know, and brethren with whom I have associated, I can see shifting enemies threatening more at different times of the history of brethren I know. Uh, for example, in the recent history of disciples that we know, and I'm going to underline that word know, God knows his people. But I think in the early 1800s and 1860s, you see the battles with Calvinism and the teachings of some of the mainstream denominations. That was the big enemy. Get away from that. Then after the Civil War, especially in the North and in the Middle States, you see a time of prosperity, which began to change the thinking of disciples. And there, there was a desire to copy the denominations. That was a big enemy. Then you see in the 1900s, early 1900s, just a lot of fussing and fighting about almost anything. You take some of those papers. I like history. Sometimes you get jewels and nuggets of gold from them, and sometimes you just shake your head. What were they fussing about now? That was a big problem in, in the first part of the 20th century. And then after World War II, you again have the prosperity, the desire to copy the denominations, to get up in the world. And among brethren I know, there was just a lot of fussing and fighting, it seems like, as I was a teenager and growing up. Just yan, 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 back and forth and name calling. 
enemies of God's people. And maybe it's just old worldliness now that affects us more than anything else. This is all subjective, but I think it does illustrate the point I'm talking about. Different types of enemy threaten us more at different stages of our lives and in the lives of others. Well, here's a third thing we need to recognize about enemies. Different generations often fear different enemies. And I think it was thinking about this and studying the scriptures on this, it made me think about this lesson in the first place. I identify closely with my father's generation. And those of you, and I think I've got 40 here, make that 45 or 50 maybe. But you remember some of the battles your parents went through or older Christians you went through. And uh, this, the things that they feared and the things that they battled are things that I identify with as well. The denominational error, especially Calvinism, which which seems to strike at the very heart of personal responsibility that we see so much in the scriptures. When I think of things that my dad had to deal with, I think of institutionalism. And this is simply the idea that God's church is not necessarily saved individuals. It's not looked upon that way. It's a collection, a network of churches that will faithfully support institutions, the schools, the hospitals that go along with a network. It's a network type of mentality. I remember my, my dad losing a lot of his friends, a lot of close people, because he took the truth on this, that we're talking about saved individuals who should not get wrapped up in the denominational machinery of institutionalism. I remember... I remember... Uh, emotional times for my dad as he had to deal with this. And others, I think, had to suffer even more than my dad with cut support, lost friendships. I identify with that. These are enemies in my mind. And so, in the last 15 or 20 years, I've, I've had some opportunities to work a lot with young people. And I think, I need to, we need to teach them about this. And I tell them, let's study institutionalism. What? You know, church support of orphans? Huh? Well, what's wrong with you all? Are, are you just a bunch of convictionless young whippersnappers? What's going on? It's that they have a different set of enemies in their mind. I think that younger Christians have their perceived enemies. And sometimes, the more I think about their perceived enemies, the more I realize, you know... They may be even more correct than I am. I think an enemy that you see sometimes with those uh, over or uh, under 40, or you could say 45 or 50, but I think they are uh, they're concerned with an overemphasis on externals. I remember one time there was a young lady who I highly admire. Yeah, very, he came close to her in our work. And... Uh, I was fussing with her about, here are these churches, and they're clapping and slaying, swaying to the music, and, uh, and they're all kinds of disorderliness. And she listened very politely to me as I fussed about that. And she said, you know, I think you're right. I think 
they're wrong. However, how does God look at this, she asked me. Do you think that God thinks that's worse than cold, dead congregations? Where brethren who are quite lukewarm, sleepily go through some routine Sunday after Sunday? Well, I thought about it a little bit. Which is worse, clapping and sweating to the music or dead, routine worship? And the more I thought about it, maybe the latter. And I think, when I look through the prophets, think of Micah especially, uh, of Malachi, God hates that cold routine. And I think sometimes some younger Christians have seen their older brethren fuss and fight over sending $50 to an orphan's home, and yet they don't pray. They don't study anything except maybe a few proof texts about denominations. And if you ask them, what is the book of 2 Thessalonians about? They would have a hard time telling you what the book of 2 Thessalonians is about. So it's not that there is no concern about enemies, spiritual enemies. It's just sometimes they're focusing on a different set than we are. Uh, they focus on an underemphasis of, on God's grace and mercy. And they've seen the biting and the devouring that goes along the matter. Where's the grace? Where's the mercy? They don't like it. And they fight against that. I'm going to illustrate the point a little bit. Some of the young people that I work with, I noticed them all reading a book. And uh, Abe said, what's a book? Yeah, I recommend the book. This was the, this was the book right here. It's called Forgotten God. And, uh, forget, and the idea is Forgetting the Holy Spirit. It's written by a man named Francis Chang. Well, I'm going to read that book. So I got to reading the book. And, you know, this guy is, is on fire. This guy is zealous. Hey, but wait, what's he saying here as I'm reading? This man thinks that the Spirit speaks to us apart from the Word of God. And he does. This man here says that he cannot rule out the miraculous today. Well, doesn't he know 1 Corinthians chapter 13? And I went and talked to some of them about my concerns about this book. Well, what were they looking at? They were looking at a powerful message against hypocrisy. And it is that. A powerful message against hypocrisy in the world that this man operates, Francis Chan. And probably in a lot of other worlds as well. What was I looking at? I was looking at dangerous postmodernism. The idea that the Holy Spirit might lead us through our feelings or our impulses or something like that. And really, I think... I think I was right. But when I stop and think about it, I think maybe they were right too. Maybe that cold, formal, going through the motions is just as bad or worse than what I was concerned about. It's not one or the other. Now, he wrote another book called Crazy Love. I can recommend it a little more because here again we have an attack against that comfortable Christianity. Maybe some less doctrinal problems in that. But the more I think about it, the more I think that... Maybe those of us who are older, and you know where, where I belong in the 50 and up crowd, and yet maybe some of the younger Christians as well, we're both right that these, all of these things threaten 
God's people. We've got to find a way to dedicate ourselves more to help the down and out, to sacrifice, to give to those who are needy. And we'd better get away from this materialism which measures success in terms of dollars. And we need to learn to pray from our hearts and get on our knees and confess our sins. These are some strengths I see among many of my younger brethren. But I think some of those of us who are older are right too. Historically, the first signs of apostasy have to do with coming to see God's church as some kind of an organization rather than as a family of individuals. The denominational machinery that goes with this thing we call institutionalism, it takes people's focus away from God. And it puts it on, what do our schools teach? What does this teach? What does that teach? And we're not asking sometimes, what does Jesus teach? It's distracting. And the presumptuous attitude towards authority that says it doesn't matter how we worship God, as long as we feel good, that takes people away from God. And it reveals a lack of respect for his authority. But here's the bottom line. It's not either or. It's not either worry about cold routine or correct doctrine. If we're followers of Christ, it's the both and. We've got to fight the overemphasis on external and a lack of change of the heart, even as we emphasize the importance of scriptural and scriptural authority, book, chapter, and verse to authorize what we're doing. Why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't it be both? Yes, different generations often fear different enemies. But here's one other point. The enemy that gets us is usually the one that we're not looking at, the one that we don't fear. That's what happened with the children of Israel. Remember back there in Numbers chapter 13, the 12 spies were sent into the land. And when they went in and looked around, uh, the verse uh, chapter uh, uh, 13, verse 32 says, they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. Giants! Verse 33. Then we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak, come from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were, we were in their sight. What was the enemy as far as the 12 spies were concerned? The big giants the big enemies, the big fierce armies of the Canaanites. But what should they have actually been fearing? Their own lack of faith. So they're focused on one enemy, the physical enemy, the giants, the big armies. What should they have been focusing on? Their own lack of faith. And that's the way it is with us. We focus here. Here's where he's coming from. We've got to get him here. And we're defeated by something we don't even take into consideration. We have a little camp uh, that's not a church camp. It's something that's an individual, personal project. 
Well, we have kids from the city out into the country and try to get some good influences around them. And there are two animals at that camp that we need to watch out for. Uh, one is extremely dangerous. And I'm going to show you a picture of that extremely dangerous enemy. There he is. The deer tick. In New Jersey and in the Northeast, that gets you Lyme's disease. I think it's very rare down here. But I am worried to death about that little fella. And every year before camp, I show him the picture of the deer tick, and you watch for this guy. If you see him, don't panic, but get him off of you. Because Lyme's disease can be nasty. I've had it. My daughter's had it. The good thing is, is we were able to... to Get it early when you can see the rash and take the antibiotics. Because if you don't, it can become debilitating over a period of time. Now, there's another animal. I say you need to be careful, but this fellow's never, I used to say, never caused the state, uh, death in the state of New Jersey. A year and a half ago, that changed. Somebody did what you're not supposed to do with this animal. But that's a black bear. This is a fellow I saw out hiking last year. But, uh... Generally not, you have to respect it, but of these two, which is the greatest danger? The deer tick. What the people fear the most? You know. They fear the bear. That's the way it is with us. We fear what is in our face, and what gets us is what we're not looking at. I'm going to give you a... um, a list of ten spiritual dangers. I, I shouldn't do this because it's subjective. I'm going to put, you, put them in a list. I'm going to start with number ten and go down. This is Gardner's opinion. Ten to, down, to number one of some dangers that face us. And uh, you can argue with me about my list later if you want. But I think the anti-religious scientific theories, the evolution, I think that's a danger. False religions and different concepts that that go against God's word. That's danger. A party spirit among Christians. Sometimes we say, our church has always taught this. That's what we're going to do. This is what our tradition is. And of course, that's not looking to Christ for the answers. That's a danger. The spirit of presumption regarding God's authorities. I'm going to do this because I want to do it. And I don't really want too much information from the Bible about how to handle that. Postmodernism, which we talked about this morning. The idea is that we just can't understand the Bible. There's no such thing as truth. Everybody just does what they want. They feel is right for them. Materialism. Getting caught up with, with money. With worries about it. Efforts to get it. Comfortable Christianity. Just going through the routine, a numbing routine that makes us think that we're fine when we're not. We're getting down to what, in my mind, are some of the most dangerous ones. Worldliness. It comes from the culture all around about us. It begins to attack us and take us away from Jesus Christ. The lust of the flesh. I guess as I've worked with young people in the last 20 years or so, and especially maybe in the last 10 And uh, this is not my topic. I'm not going to get off on this. 
You would be surprised at how many young people struggle with this, especially young men. Sometimes we've, these are unofficial types of surveys, but when you have, we've had on several occasions large groups of young men, young Christian men. And we ask a question like this, how many of you have looked at pornographic sites on the internet in the last month? Usually the answer comes in just about 75%. Not talking about worldly young men, I'm talking about Christian young men. This twist their concept. It makes it difficult for them when they want to be married. It's, it's a drug that takes over. We're fighting with so many young men right now to try to help them get away. And this is not my topic. I don't want to wax long on this. But let me just say this briefly. Parents, and especially parents of young boys. And since I don't know you, I can say this. But I've heard this said. There's, there is one word that can use be used to describe parents who let their kids have unsupervised access to the Internet. Usually it comes through the smartphone uh, when they're young, young and young teenagers. And that is stupid. That's strong language. But after what I've seen and after the, the sexual abuse and the twisted sexual minds of young men raised in Christian homes, I think it's time to use some strong language. Don't let your kids have that smartphone without all kinds of filters and all kinds of protections, and then you watch them like hawks. That's a little exhortation along that line. But I put that at number two as far as the list of spiritual dangers. And the worst, of course, is that old pride. So subtle. And I've just kind of put it there with its companion. Selfishness and lack of love. Now, you may be focusing pretty well, fighting against some of these. But maybe there's something up there that you're not focusing on very much. And this is just my list. There are other lists. Whenever you start putting up lists, there's a danger of leaving out something that is of great importance. I work with a number of people who are, whose culture has to do with a lot of superstition. And... Uh, there's a godly woman I know, and she was about to buy a house. And some kids from the neighborhood evidently got in. It's a nice neighborhood, but they sprayed 666 on one of the walls. She would not buy the house. I said, if that's the house you want, it's demon-possessed. That's not demon-possessed. That's just 10-year-old kids that came over there and sprayed that on there. They fear that. They fear some kind of uh, superstition, chupacabras. Look that one up on Google if you want to. That's the Caribbean. Some people fear that. Oh, they're scared to death. But what gets them? The old-fashioned lust of the flesh. And sometimes I said, if you feared the lust of the flesh as much as you feared chupacabras, we'd be a lot better off. But there's that tendency to fear what's not going to get us and to overlook what will. There are brethren, you can include me in this number, who fear instrumental music, who fear, fair, who fear uh, liberalism. I'm one of them. But what gets them? Pride. A sectarian spirit. Even carnality. 
And on the other hand, I think of younger brethren who fear traditionalism and they fear Phariseeism. And I hope I fear that too. But what gets them? Pride. Ungodly entertainment. Some who can speak so eloquently, it seems, about the traditionalism and the Phariseeism. There is no movie they would not see in the theater. I don't get it. That's what gets them. Looseness regarding clothing, materialism, and things like that. May God help us not to just focus on one spiritual danger, but to look at that package that comes from Satan. There are enemies that we have beyond our comprehension. Paul describes them in Ephesians 6.12. He says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And maybe that's where I've lacked in this lesson. All of these enemies I've mentioned are some that we can see. But Paul is saying there are enemies that go beyond what we can even perceive there in the spiritual realm. But God hasn't left us defenseless. He's given us the armor of God, the full armor of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, we'll start with verse 14. I don't have it up here on the screen, but I'm just going to read it. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness... And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication of the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplications. For the saint. And perhaps our greatest defense of all, to put on this armor, is a fervent love for God. If we love Him with all our heart and soul and mind, that's going to inject us with, a, with something that's going to protect us against so many of these enemies. We can't overcome, we can't have victory. But we've got to stop loving ourselves and focusing on ourselves so much and care instead about serving God and serving other people. That way we'll overcome. We'll have that triumph with God. That purpose here and that eternal life in heaven. Well, what about your enemies? Do you have God on your side to face them and battle them? Can you think of how it would be to battle for your salvation? Without God, you can't do it. You want to face all the evil in the world without the creator of the universe at your side? He wants you to be his child. He wants you to serve him. If, if you are not a Christian, the biggest enemy you face now is simply facing God without the forgiveness that comes through his son. You can change your life. You can have a new life. You can arise tonight and be baptized and wash away your sins. Let us know if we can help you with that. Thanks for your good attention. Let's sing the invitation song.